0: Welcome to Into the Anthropocene, our impact on earth. On now at the Art Gallery of Ontario is Anthropocene. This major new contemporary art exhibition tells the story of human impact on the earth through film, photography, and new experiential technologies. It features the work of Canadian photographer, Edward Bertinsky and filmmakers Jennifer Beitoil and Nicolas de Poncier. To accompany this groundbreaking exhibition, the AGO has produced this podcast series to take you deeper into just some of the many issues orbiting the Anthropocene. I'm Serene Fox, your host. In this, our first episode, we speak with the artists themselves.
1: How small we are, in the relative history of the Earth, and yet how much effect we have had, how much impact we have had, how we dominate—to
2: me was absolutely overwhelming. We are at this moment in time where the environment is, you know, surfacing as an existential crisis for all of us. It's—it's uh, it's threatening everybody's home and life and the way we, you know, we come to be accustomed to living.
0: I sat down with the artists in Toronto at the Art Gallery of Ontario to learn more about this immense, multifaceted project with the peculiar name. Bonjour, Anine, My name is Serene Fox, and I'm here in Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee territory, and I have an immense, immense gratitude and pleasure to speak with.
1: Jennifer Baitreau. Nick Depensier. Edward
2: Bertinski.
0: Hello, guys. How are you doing? Hello. Yeah, it's, we're doing great.
1: <laughs>
2: happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So happy to be with you. What is the Anthropocene, guys? What do you think this means? Well, according to
1: our scientists from the Anthropocene Working Group, the Anthropocene is the time in the geological record when humans have moved the planet outside its natural limits.
3: Anthropocene, literally the human epoch. So in the geological time scale where scientists look at at, uh, the history of our Earth, uh, they are supposing that there is enough evidence to name our current geological epoch officially after ourselves because it is humans more than the meteors and ice ages and things that have traditionally delineated these uh, geological uh, increments of time.
0: What an impact we've already had kaboom. Mm -hmm.
1: 10,000 years um, is modern civilization and the history of the earth is 4.5 billion years old. So when you think about it, we've had a lot of effect (laughs) in a pretty short time.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. But we entered this last century as, you know, there were about a little over 1 billion of us, 1.5, and we're now almost eight going to 10. So in a century and a bit, We've literally, you know, have about six times more of us here uh, as the top predator of the planet.
0: So for the Anthropocene Project, which includes the exhibition, the film, books, and more, you've been working with the Anthropocene Working Group. Can you say more about this? Why should we be paying attention?
1: The idea of official ratification of something like Anthropocene is interesting. I mean, you could argue that who cares? It's a name. It's the name of an epoch. It's a geological epoch. Why, why does that have any meaning at all? And actually, uh, it was Elizabeth Colbert who said that if the Anthropocene is ratified, every geology textbook in the world will immediately become obsolete.
0: Jennifer's talking about American journalists and Pulitzer Prize winning writer, Elizabeth Colbert. We're talking to her in episode five.
1: And when you think about the the, the potential dissemination of an idea of human domination, really human domination of every single system on the earth, uh, the dissemination of that, that comes from the name of a geological leaf, but whether it happens or not, whether the official ratification happens or not, it is enough in the consciousness that it, it, it will take hold. And I think that that is another way that we, it's about that shifting consciousness is the beginning of change. Uh, changing, naming an epoch after humans because this fleeting species has had more impact than all natural processes combined in the time that we have been on Earth um, is quite powerful.
3: And the scientists are all freaking out right? They're, they're, geologists are not used to all this media attention and bright lights. Um, <laughs> yes, certainly I mean, <laughs> are not. No. So, yeah. so there's something, I think, there's, there's learning for everyone in this process.
0: The idea of changing our current epoch to the Holocene is a tough thing for some scientists to wrap their heads around. Where's all of the evidence? And how can you have an epoch that's only 70 or so years old? It's contentious.
2: And for geologists as well, I think, you know, they're used to trying to move a boundary from 160 million years ago to maybe 165 million years ago because of some new evidence. And they're trying to kind of nuance, you know, the stuff in, in deep past. So it is they're kind of out of their comfort zone and and they don't see the imperative because, you know, they're looking at such deep time. Whereas as artists and as citizens, we're going, no, no, we have kids and and the imperative is now because if we don't kind of change behavior now and we move to 10 billion with the
3: same set of behaviors, you know, our chances aren't very good. Geology's become a political act where probably a lot of them chose it because they, they didn't need that amount of, of attention and scrutiny and yet the, the friends that we've made and the, and the colleagues that we've worked with, they all care so deeply and it's such a privilege as a, as a filmmaker, as an artist for all of us to, to, to get the benefit of, of these whole careers worth of inquiry and learning on their part. Um, and that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that's what this project is about.
0: We can talk about how heavy this particular moment is, but also there's a lot of hope in how much people are starting to wake up. I see people waking up.
1: I'm very heartened by the the passion that is in these scientists and this interdisciplinary group as they grapple with these big questions too. The Anthropocene Working Group are not just geologists. They're biologists, they're archaeologists, they're earth system scientists. They have their own interdisciplinarity going on in that group. And the reason that they were all brought together is precisely because geologists are used to thinking in deep time. So there are archaeologists who are looking at um, landfill sites as contemporary strata, for example, that this is the strata of today. The whole idea of a techno-fossil that is, you know, a cell phone is a techno-fossil. It's a human-created object that will persist in the biosphere and eventually end up in the rock layers of the earth. But it's perfectly dateable. You know exactly when it was made. It's even probably got the date on it in many cases.
2: <laughs> well, concrete being or cement being the greatest techno fossil that we've left uh, behind. And I think the latest stat that I heard is quotable is that if you coated the whole planet, it would be two millimeters of, of
1: you know, concrete
2: that, that we've laid onto the planet. These things that we're leaving in volumes behind.
1: Volumes that. to the point of like their estimation is that the technosphere, which is the entire aggregate of human created or altered material on Earth, is 30 trillion tons. That is the latest estimate. Like, try to imagine that. Like that, that's how much yeah. shit <laughs> Just we, like we create and, <laughs> and throw away. That's Solar <laughs> all our crap. That's our
3: crop.
0: We don't know what to do with anymore. We've made so much stuff that we don't know where to put it.
2: We are at this moment in time where the environment is, you know, surfacing as an existential crisis for all of us. Uh, It's it's threatening everybody's home and life and the way we, you know, we come to be accustomed to living.
0: Okay, I want to know a lot more about your work, and especially your work together. So can you tell me how you guys became collaborators.
3: Jennifer and I go way back. Uh, We met at a job interview at the Bamboo Tavern on Queen Street in the For a job
1: that didn't pay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A job (laughs) with no pay. That's my idea of a good job.
3: Jennifer had a, she was an academic and I was a filmmaker and she had an idea to make a film about a writer, Paul Bolt, in Morocco and uh, she needed a director of photography and I signed on and uh, we now have two teenage children and we've made
0: ten, ten films, films
3: probably together and so our uh, our lives are intertwined creatively and otherwise and Part of our journey as filmmakers um, uh, took us towards Ed Bertinsky's work. Um, Thirteen
1: years ago we started, we embarked on this collaboration and it began with Manufactured Landscapes, which was our film about Ed's um, industrial revolution photographic essay in China, and then we went on to make Watermark together, that was the second, and we envision these films as a trilogy. So Anthropocene is the third in a trilogy that includes manufactured landscapes and watermarks. So it spans a 13-year span of collaboration. Manufactured landscapes was a really fairly contained idea, this Industrial Revolution in China, and following uh, Ed as he was documenting Lucian yeah China.
3: Documenting in a way that really hadn't been seen before. Um, and we became friends when we were working on that project together and all agreed that we saw the world in congruent ways. And I think we're interested in each other's practices and and we're learning a lot from from each other in that sense. So we collaborated again. What I was hoping to find in a filmmaker was, you know, somebody who
2: would be able to extend that context, number one, of what I'm doing. And number two, that the film becomes almost uh, a piece in itself, that it becomes
1: the artwork as well. And it was very difficult in the beginning and it was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about how to intelligently represent one medium and another. It's not easy, it's not something that you, you just, it happens. And that we, Peter Mettler and I had long conversations about that and I had long conversations with Nick. Peter was the cinematographer on that film. I was the director and Nick was the producer. And Because that film had the impact that it did um, around the world, surprisingly for all of us, nobody expected it to resonate so much with people. And I think that it did resonate because of the fact that it was experiential rather than accusatory. And so when that film resonated, we thought, okay, well, we should keep doing this together. We should keep uniting or intermingling these mediums.
0: So that's how you all came to work together. But why film? Why photography? Why did you choose your medium?
1: For me, film has always been kind of a fascinating medium. I'm not a, uh, I didn't go to film school. I'm I'm self-taught. I was an academic who decided to move away from academic inquiry and try to go into a more sort of creative realm to ask the same questions that I was preoccupied with in that academic world of identity and metaphysics and ethics and, and how we live, how we live with others, how we live in the world. Coming to film and sort of marrying picture and text in some way and the the possibilities of that were so mind-blowing to me. And they still are. Like I, I This is a vocation, this is not a, a job, this is something that as soon as I started doing it I knew. I wanted to do this forever, and and thank God I met Nick, who has you know a similar, um, aesthetic and, and and philosophy, and and it's it's not the most lucrative thing to do often, but it really is very rewarding. But it does feel like they, those were big questions. They're big questions that we're asking, and Ed was asking big questions in his photography, and when they came together in that way, they they sort of. Supported each other, it was like this this um, uh, the intermingling of mediums created something else that 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 had its own momentum.
2: The still image actually has a very interesting role in that it lives amongst us it's in our homes or it's on gallery walls or it's in corporate offices. Film was this whole other audience, and I felt again as an artist that I was you know that if I travel internationally. I'm more known for manufactured landscapes and watermark than 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 the books and the images that I make. This, you know, opens it up to much greater audiences and the narrative level of what I was trying to do should mean something to everybody. It shouldn't it doesn't contain to any, you know, one group or one sector or one culture.
0: So how was working together on Anthropocene different from your previous experiences?
2: I think what's different about uh, Anthropocene is that right from the get-go we sat down and said all the decisions that we're going to make about the subjects that we go to we're going to make together so a year for a year we were doing research and talking about it and planning where we're going to go and 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 what we're going to try and pull out of those locations that will again help define visually and uh, conceptually the idea of the Anthropocene so From the very beginning of this project, we collaborated. And that's really where a lot of the coming together uh, and building all of these different locations and narratives, uh, you know, came together.
0: So I think at this point, we're really just teasing our listeners. We've talked about the word Anthropocene, but let's dive deeper. Why Anthropocene?
1: When we first started it, Ed and I were in Washington walking on the streets uh, for Watermark was, was playing in the US and we were talking about should we do another project together and what would it be and I remember first going, I'm not doing another film that is a huge subject that has all of these different elements, it's way too hard, it's much easier to just follow, you know, go on a road trip for example, you know. And then, and then it, I said, what about the Anthropocene? And we've been talking about the Anthropocene for, you know, years. And what about that? What, what would it be like if that word became a household word, a, a word that everybody recognized? And that night in the theatre, we asked everybody in the audience, in the Watermark audience, who understands, knows what this word means. And I think there were like three people, four people who knew. And that was the germ in the beginning of the idea. So that the, the goal is to, can we make this concept something that everybody understands and also then reflects on their own participation in why it is real?
3: Yeah, for me, the ambition of the Anthropocene project is not to provide answers to these incredibly complex questions because a, who are we? It's a very unique perspective and it's limited by uh, a, a, a really small, narrow, um, uh, subjective uh, outlook. The ambition of the Anthropocene Project is to raise all of these questions. And some people take us to task for that, saying, you know, what is the answer? Uh, um, give us something to go on. Be be prescriptive. Um, but... I think it's more interesting, and we've all agreed in our practice, it's more interesting um, in the work, in the artistic work. So, sure, we can share our opinions about what we do to change and what progress might look like for us um, on a a very subjective level. But if this work gets experienced by um, a, a broader audience, which, of course, we hope it does, we hope that their answers will be as different as, and numerous as there are people who experience it.
2: If I can add, by I think by not being accusatory, but trying to be revelatory, um, it's, it allows an opening. But when you kind of are able to be brought along in this narrative and to see these places and to kind of understand the scope of what we're doing, if you arrive as an individual to a conclusion yourself without being told what that conclusion is, you own it more, I believe, or we all believe you own it more, that, that, that you've come with, back with an opinion.
0: This project has so many different elements to it. The film that was launched at the Toronto International Film Festival, two books, an educational program, and then of course, all at the same time, two exhibitions. One here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and one at the National Gallery of Canada.
1: Well, the project as a whole is a pretty big woolly beast, and it just kind of kept growing and growing. I mean, there is there is the museum exhibition, and the museum exhibition is made up of photography, film installations, murals, film extensions of those murals, and then augmented reality or kind of virtual sculptures that are all in a way intended to use lens-based media to deepen experiential understanding in their own way. The film is a a complement to that. The film is a feature documentary called Anthropocene that will, uh, you know, extend in a different way, in a narrative way. all of these elements that you will also experience in the exhibition. The book becomes another way of, of experiencing this this big um, circus. <laughs> this yeah, and giving that deeper circus.
2: context that, 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 that you know, becomes more meaningful when somebody says, I want to go further with this, so, so we want the material to be there, to go further.
0: So this work took you all over the globe. You traveled to Nigeria, Kenya, India, Indonesia, Chile, just to name a few. What are the challenges you face as you take your camera around the world?
1: The film is a record of, of this four-year journey uh, that we've taken. It took, it just like all our films, it took about a year to edit. So we've been editing for just over 10 months now. And we're about to lock picture. and. Uh, there's, I can't, I'm not even going to tell you how much footage was shot because it's embarrassing. Uh, the ratios are massive, hundreds of hours of footage. But um, it's also a part of a philosophy of filmmaking, which is not to go in and dictate, not to... I mean, the ethics of what we do as documentarians are, is probably the most important element of our work um, because we do go all around the world into these different contexts. And if you don't go into those places with... Humility and the right attitude and a kind of openness um, uh, You you're not going to be able to convey that place uh, and you don't have a right to convey that place It's an aggressive act to point a camera at somebody to point a camera at anything And so I am we are always mindful working about where we are and how we are in that place Hence, we shoot a lot <laughs> and that's part of it. We shoot a lot and we the the story emerges Um in the edit room, it's almost like it becomes what it is meant to be.
0: I can imagine this was a powerful journey for you, intellectually and emotionally. What are the moments that have stayed with you, affected you?
3: Ed, what was your favourite? You, what, what stands out? Actually,
2: going into Norilsk, into Russia, was, was for me a, a, a really revelatory moment. And, and just seeing the scale uh, you know, of you know, 300 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, and there's this, you know, 170,000 people in, in, in these huge mines, you know, one of the largest nickel mines in the world, and you get out of the airport and your eyes are stinging from, from the sulfur dioxide in, in, in the air. And, um, and just like your lungs are, you know, you immediately feel it and it's known as, it's usually number one in the most polluted
3: place in the world. I think for me, experientially, um, when we were in Kenya and the government of Kenya had for decades been stockpiling confiscated uh, elephant tusks from poachers. Uh, Whenever they would come across poachers, they would take these things that have an enormous black market street value and are hugely political. Um, in terms of which countries have signed ivory trade bans and not. And there's this incredible woman who we met uh, named Dr. Winnie Karu there, who's a wildlife biologist in Nairobi. And it was her idea and her force of will, really, to take all of the Kenyan government stockpiles of elephant tusks and some rhino horn and get it all together index it all and then burn it and we're talking about 105 tons of ivory which is an enormous amount it was a huge statement to the poachers in the world that there is no market for ivory and the mix of emotions as you watch those huge piles of ivory burn and as you film them um, where you think what a loss to the world that these elephants are not alive, that they're not out on out on the range, and and yet, um, what a statement uh, that this feels like! It's a it's a defining moment, it's a crucible moment, uh, hopefully for this movement to raise awareness and to turn the tide, because the the opposite way of thinking is the end of the of the African elephant. And who wants to imagine that?
1: Yeah, that was, it's worth $150 million. And that was the tusks of 10,000 elephants, approximately. And you just, it was mind boggling, you know. And uh, Winnie is a very powerful force. Uh, she was incredible. And we also went to Old Pejeta Conservancy, which has, uh, which is a, a conservation area Protecting uh, endangered and um, uh, at-risk wildlife, and we spent a lot of time with Sudan, who was the last male northern white rhino who died in March uh, of this year, sadly. And that was incredibly powerful. First of all, just to be with this, the last of a species, um, and and also to be to witness all of the care that was happening around this this rhino and that goes to my thing about the ingenuity that we use to destroy can also be the ingenuity we use to preserve and the people who loved Sudan and who uh, were taking care of him it was it was powerful it was incredibly powerful our production days were three years four months and 22 days so this whole project has been we're getting to the five-year mark so we've been around a lot and one of the most powerful locations for me was actually in, on Vancouver Island. I grew up in Victoria, and so I'm from the West Coast, and we were in Port Renfrew around uh, the logging areas of Vancouver Island. And to go into these clear cuts and see old growth trees, trees over a thousand years old, routinely cut for, you know, the banal things that we do with wood, <laughs> um, was absolutely devastating. Absolutely devastating. And um, I mean, the statistics are terrible. There's less than 10% of old growth forest left on Vancouver Island. Forests are home to 80% of the world's terrestrial biodiversity. But we have decimated or cleared 85% of the world's forest. There's 15% of intact forest left in the world. Isn't um, the Galleria Italia like Gary's, I'm sorry, it's a, it's even here in the AGO, because that's all Douglas Fir. You're that, right. That is all Douglas Fir. That's the staircase going up and that whole part. And he requested Douglas Fir because, so, I mean, these are the paradoxes that we're involved in. In
0: fact, I think Frank Gary used Douglas Fir in his 2008 architectural transformation of the AGO. It's literally all around us. It's beautiful. You mentioned the Tuskpile and Sudan, and these two experiences appear in the exhibition as augmented reality installations. And there's also a third augmented reality installation at the AGO, Big Lonely Doug, which is Canada's second largest Douglas fir tree. How did you make all of these happen?
3: So it was an incredible thing to be a part of and to and to witness and to work really hard to document in really all of our media. We had 360 VR cameras, we had documentary cameras, Ed was taking stills, and it was the first real big um, iteration of our augmented reality where we documented the day before the biggest pile, President Kenyatta's pile, of ivory tusks uh, with you know, more than 2,000 high resolution stills that then get stitched together into a virtual sculpture. And that pile doesn't exist anymore, but at incredible exquisite detail and resolution, uh, we have a three-dimensional file that's a digital file that can uh, let people witness it and experience it.
0: So if I'm in the exhibition, what am I going to see and do? Does it involve headgear or special goggles or a special suit?
2: Well, there are different ways I think you can experience it. But one of the things that we find really uh, exciting is that um, by downloading uh, an app on your phone and, and downloading the asset, we can create what's called a, a target where you point your phone at this target and thus appears the tree. And then with your phone, you can look to the top of it, look down, you can go close, walk around it. So all of a sudden, you're the protagonist. You can move around the tree with your phone and experience it. And if you're there with a friend, they can stand beside the base of the tree and you can take a picture, and it's you standing next to Big Lonely Doug, which is really exciting as well.
0: And this also happens as an experience with Sudan as well, right?
1: I mean, it was really sad when he died because we were hoping that he, he would be alive here as he is alive there. So now it becomes, um, it's mournful in a different way. Uh, a
2: living portrait of, of him? Maybe. Yeah, a Unless living
1: portrait he... of him so that you, 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 know, you actually get to sort of be right beside him. And I think that that will have a huge impact. Um, but it's a, it's one of those tricky things where it, it, he... Uh,
3: the last of a species.
1: The last of a species, you know. It's, it's heavy. Uh, but I hope it's also um, transformative for people to be able to be in the room with him.
0: We've touched on this, but... Art-making and science certainly aren't neutral fields, neutral spaces. What are the ethics, the politics surrounding the Anthropocene, and the work you are presenting?
3: There's wonderful criticism um, where the, the people argue that the Anthropocene should be called the Capitalocene because actually there is really only a small fraction of people who are responsible for a lot of the dynamics uh, on the Earth systems that we're talking about. We
1: all partake of the Earth, but some of us partake a hell of a lot more than others, and uh, that I don't. That that's the thing that, that sort of upsets me the most in terms of the radical imbalances uh, and. That's the thing that Anthropocene doesn't really address because it it, it assumes that we're all culpable and we're not. (laughs) We're not all culpable. Some of us are way more culpable than others. And you could argue that, you know, us traveling all around the world and spending all of these resources and energy to do what we do. That's a culpability. And it's an equation. Are, are we doing enough? You know, we can offset everything we do, which we do. We carbon offset all of our, but that's one gesture, you know, um, is, is the message important enough, strong enough to um, warrant all of that energy use?
3: you know, the whole colonial mindset, which is still very much alive today in a, in a capitalist way of sort of conquering and expanding uh, at the expense of anyone who might get in the way or is who, who could be exploitable or expendable, still very much alive.
1: Many of the places that we were, like I would say, I would take one step backwards from that to say that there, if as soon as you see it through a political lens, and you can look at the Anthropocene from an indigenous perspective, from a feminist perspective, uh, from a so from a uh, the a social justice perspective, and in every single one of those uh, ways of looking at it, it changes. Um, I. my own background is a mixed background my mother was British and my father was from uh, India and when they got together their families rejected them and they were my mother's mother never spoke to her again and my father's family eventually kind of of accepted my mom but I grew up with in with no sense of 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 a collective sense of identity because we all we were were with each other i mean everybody there, nobody was like us and so we weren't part of one group and we weren't part of the other group and it used to be the most sort of the worst thing because i wanted that feeling and my friends who had these big communities or either you know religiously or ethnically or whatever and felt like they were part of something bigger and i never did And I realize now, looking back on it, that it has been the strongest influence on me as a filmmaker because I look at things from marginal perspectives, not from the centre, not from the dominant perspective. And when we are in the field thinking about how to convey a place, we're not going to the head of the mine in Germany, we're going to the carrot farmer, Nicole, who has been who is about to be displaced by this mine, and we're getting her perspective. When we went to the Colorado River Delta in Watermark, we didn't talk to the water expert who talks about the fact that the Colorado River is so damned it 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 no longer reaches the ocean and these vast areas that used to be wetlands that are now deserts. We went and talked to Donna Innocencia, who is from that place, who is indigenous, whose whole community has been decimated because they were a river community. They were a fishing community. They're all gone. She has a museum in her town. She's one of, I think there's five or ten of them left. And it's her perspective that we need to understand that place. So I feel like um, that is just part of the way that we tell the stories of these places, is finding that unexpected, marginal view that opens up the view of the whole place in a different way. And I would like to think that all of those implications of, you know, extraction, colonization, etc., uh, inequity are present, are embedded in the work, I hope.
0: I know you resist telling viewers how to think about your work. You want visitors to draw their own conclusions, but you've spent years on this exhibition, this project, what are you hoping audiences walk away with?
2: My feeling is that is that just when you look at your city, when you look at your life, you know, that it, all of this means that, you know, there's a place that it all comes from. All of a sudden you just look at your whole environment in a whole new way and understand that everything has an impact.
3: My hope for the Anthropocene Project would be that people in that space take the time to step out of the the crazy, busy slipstream, and just contemplate the the whole planet and and geological time and their place in it, um, and hopefully come away with something that maybe they wouldn't have uh, if they hadn't taken that that moment of pause and contemplation.
1: I do think that that the Anthropocene is a very big idea, and the idea of geological time is almost incomprehensible. There was one place we went to, Zumaya in Spain, where you see these cliffs and you can stand in front of them and it, you're basically looking at uh, millions and millions of years of the Earth's history on in one vista. You're just looking at them and it's, it's the the sea floor that has been pushed up through tectonic activity into these cliffs and they're literally layers. You can see the layers and we were there with the geologist who said each of these layers is about 10,000 years. So you're looking at millions of years in 10,000 year increments. And all of modern human civilization has happened within just one of these layers. And the, the magnitude of that, like how small we are in the relative history of the earth and yet how much effect we have had, how much impact we have had, how we dominate, to me was absolutely overwhelming. And I hope that when people experience the cumulative, uh, the aggregate of this project, all of these elements together, that they will be able to have that feeling that I had.
0: Miigwech, thank you. Ed, Jennifer, Nick, it's been such a pleasure. That brings us to the end of our first episode. In our next episode, we'll tackle the science of the Anthropocene. What are the top 10 things about the Anthropocene you need to know? And what on earth is a technofossil? We'll get you up to snuff on the science of our changing planet and conversations with geologists Jan Zelishevich and Colin Waters and science writer Gaia Vince. What we're having now is the Anthropocene, and what that means is the age of humans.
2: It is controversial amongst geologists because these changes have taken place so quickly and in such a short time.
0: What's the number one thing you need to know about the Anthropocene? You'll have to wait until next time to find out. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth, was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, featuring the works of Edward Bertinsky, Jennifer Bechoal, and Nicolas Pencier, The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.